Paul says to the believers at Thessalonica, he says to them in chapter 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So much so that he says in verses 7 and 8, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, northern Greece, and Achaia, southern Greece, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not say anything. Would that be stunning? We know about Covenant Presbyterian Church. You don't have to tell me about that church. I know about that church. And having said that, what the person would then say would speak of our love for the Lord, for one another, our service to Him and to one another instead of circulating the latest rumor or some nasty bit of gossip. Wouldn't that not be amazing? Let me show you something. Look at Psalm 34. This is all leading up to the whys and wherefores. Look at Psalm 34. David has found himself in a very difficult situation from which the Lord has has delivered him. Anybody relate to that? Find yourself in a difficult situation from which you would like the Lord to deliver you? This is what David writes. Look at Psalm 34. And by the way, this um, you see it's 22 verses long, just to tell you very quickly. 22 verses in the Hebrew alphabet. This is an acrostic. Each of these Verses begins with the next succeeding letter in the Hebrew alphabet again, uh, a means by which um, to structure something poetically as well as to aid in its uh, in your ability to memorize it. Now listen to this. Listen and, and think. Uh, take hear what David has to say, and ask yourself, man. Would I love for that to be my testimony? Listen to David. I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. I'm going to praise, I'm going to praise Him continually. His praise will continually be in my mouth. I'm going to boast in the Lord. I want the humble to hear and to be glad. I want you to magnify the Lord with me. I want you to, uh, I want us together to exalt His name. Look at verse 4. Because, let me tell you, this is my testimony, David says. I sought the Lord and He answered me. Did you ever feel like that wasn't true? David says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. David writes that those who look to Him, they're radiant. Their, their faces shall never be ashamed. <laughs> you ever felt less than radiant? You ever felt sometimes a little bit ashamed? 
David says the angel of the Lord, verse 7, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, those who properly are in awe of him, those who out of a Filial, a brotherly, a, a suddenly fear, uh, a fe- the fear of a, the proper fear and awe of a son for their father. Those who fear him have no lack. And then David writes in verse 11, you know, young lions, those who think they're tough, they suffer want, they suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What do you lack? What are you lacking this morning? Those, what is David talking about? David says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now watch. If you have not heard a thing this morning... Now, stay with me here. Look at verse 11. This is of critical importance. David writes, so come, children, come. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to teach you what it means to fear the Lord. I'm going to teach you about the fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you what you need to know in order that everything that I've just testified in these above verses might also be your testimony, might also be your testimony because those things that I have told you are my experience will be your experience. That's what David writes. He says, come children, listen to me. I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. What man is there? What man or woman, what person is there that doesn't want to be able to love the life they live and doesn't desire to see many good days? Yeah, the best is yet to come, but we're not supposed to be miserable in this world. I know the Creator of heaven and earth. So who among you, who among you, David says, would love to be able to love the life that you live? Who among you would desire to look back and say, you know, these days, this time, that now and what I can anticipate for the future, these are good days. What's the secret? Now, Let's back up a minute. Remember, David's writing to those who love the Lord. He's not writing to a general audience. He's writing to those who love the Lord. He's writing to those who genuinely love their God, genuinely look to Him for the fulfillment of all of those covenant promises about which we have been speaking and will continue to speak this morning. 
In our context, he's speaking to those who by grace through faith have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord and their King, recognizing that He is the Creator by whom and for whom they have been made. Okay? He's not talking to a general audience. There are those of you who are about to hear what David's going to say, and you're going to draw two false, two or three false conclusions. The first false conclusion you're going to draw is, so... If I do these things, God will be pleased with me and I'll be saved. No, 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 no. This is talking to people who are saved. You've got to hear that. You have to understand that. And secondly, you're going to hear what David's about to say, and you're going to say, well, that's not possible. Well, of course it's possible. If it's what the Lord asks of us, of course it's possible. He, he doesn't ask of us anything that He will not enable us to do. Do you hear that? Do you believe that? He doesn't ask of us anything that He doesn't enable us to do. That's critical. Critical that you believe that. And thirdly, there are those of you who are going to hear these words and go, oh, brother. You are. Because this is what David writes, and some of you have already cheated and looked. David writes, if you want to live a life that you love, you want to see good days, verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Wow. Wow. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Is that not an amazing statement? You want to live a life you love? You want to see good days? You want to be, you want David's testimony to be your testimony? You want to be able to testify that just as David was able to, to speak about the way that, that God had just in, worked incredibly in his life, that you could offer that same, you, you want to love the life you live and see good days? David says, the Holy Spirit of God speaking through David says, and by the way, the Apostle Peter quotes this psalm in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you'd like to read 1 Peter and see this psalm in a further context. But, but David writes, he says, if you want those things, then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. You're not saved by doing those things, but because you are saved, you are empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit of God at work within you, that same God that has given to you the gift of faith, that same Holy Spirit gives you the power and the ability, the wherewithal to do what David has just described. And David said, if you want to live a life you love and see good days, then listen to me. Listen to me. Okay, now, so, so the question becomes, and to turn to Genesis chapter 4, 
The question becomes, as we proceed in our study of the unfolding of God's covenant uh, throughout Scripture, and we're going to begin to pick up some steam today, if I can ever get to this sermon. The question is, if the living of a life I love and the seeing of good days, as a child of God, as one who has embraced Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, if that has to do with learning to discipline myself, to keep my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceit, to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it, then why don't I do that? Why don't I do that? Why does my tongue have to wag so incessantly about things, about people, about situations, about circumstances that should never be on my lips? Why do we gossip? Why do we speak ill of others? Why do we speak disrespectfully to our parents? Two things in our household that we would not tolerate as our children were growing up was to hear them lie or to hear them speak disrespectfully. Why do we do that? Why do we gossip, speak ill of others, speak disrespectfully? Why do we as parents snap at our children? I've certainly never been guilty of that. Why do, why do we speak deceitfully? Why do we choose to do what we shouldn't, fail to do what we should? Why do we say and do what we know? For? Why do we say and do what we know full well will stir up a hornet's nest? I declare there are people who just love to see those hornets buzz. I mean, it's like it's the objective of their life. Let's see how much I can stir things up here. Let me see how angry I can get these hornets. Let me see how many people I can get them to. Why do we do that? <laughs> we do that because of what we're told here in the opening chapters of Genesis. The whys and the wherefores of the struggles of our life are here. The, the reasons for all of that are here in the opening chapters of Genesis as well as the Gospel. As well as the good news that can deliver us from all that. God creates the world good. He creates us as image bearers. But Adam and Eve choose to believe Satan's lies instead of trust their Creator's promises. And the consequences become staggering. The, the creation now finds itself in bondage. And, and men and women now still image bearers of God. Now we still image bearers of God, but now we are also image bearers of Adam and of Eve. We're sons of Adam, daughters of Eve. And we suffer the consequences of living in a fallen world and in the midst of a creation and bondage to evil. We live in the midst of, of a rebellious people with hearts and minds alienated from God as, as well as one another. That's what we've learned. That's what we've seen in these opening chapters. 
But we have also seen that God, God steps into the picture, promises that a man will be born of woman who will crush the head of the evil one. It is God who covers Adam and Eve's guilt and shame with the skins of animals which speak of the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement in their place. These animals die that their shame and guilt might be covered. That sacrifice, that initial sacrifice, anticipating the final and perfect sacrifice of Christ And then God justly and yet mercifully, He drives Adam and Eve from the garden because He will not allow them graciously, mercifully, He will not allow them to live forever in their fallen condition. Then here in Genesis 4, and beginning through Genesis chapter 6, please turn there, the story continues. So let me pray. Father, help us to hear this story. Help us to understand this story. Help us to understand its importance and its relevance to us. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves, sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, but by Your grace, by Your mercy, by the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the reign, and the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. People delivered from sin's curse and power and now set here upon this earth to be Your witnesses. Father, help us to hear the story. Here in Genesis 4, through Genesis chapter 6, very quickly, as you can see, of course, and as many of you know, to Adam and Eve are born two sons, Cain and Abel. I was, uh, our first church was on Grand Cayman Island in the British West Indies. Tough call, somebody had to go. So um, we served the PCA church there on Grand Cayman. And uh, one of the elders on the session was named Abel. And at the first session meeting, he said, I'm Abel, you're king. Let's remember who's who. Great guy. Great guy. But here's Cain and Abel. He's grown men. Cain becomes a farmer, Abel a rancher. Farmers and ranchers that never went well in the old cowboy movies. They never did seem to get along. But the horror is, of course, that here in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices before the Lord. We can debate What distinguishes their sacrifice? The book of Hebrews talks about Abel's faith. Uh, Some talk about Cain's offering being bloodless. I think the bottom line is in verses 3 and 4 of Genesis 4, where what are we told? This is what we're told. It's very subtle, but it's there. This is what we're told. Cain offered to the Lord some of his produce, but Abel offered to the Lord the best of his flock and herd. What's the difference there? Well, the difference was enough that Abel's offering pleased the Lord, but Cain's didn't. And Cain became angry. 
And he became very angry. And in verse 6, God challenges and warns Cain, Why are you angry? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, listen to me, sin is crouching at the door, and it desires to have you to rule over you. And of course, rule over him it does. For Cain, angry and jealous, kills his brother Abel. Think about that. One generation... One generation out of Eden. And the fall, the consequences of the fall, those degrading consequences are manifested in an act of fatricide. A brother killing a brother. Justly God curses Cain, drives him from home mercifully. God places a mark upon him so that others will not feel free to kill him. Now, if you just try, stop and try to think through all of this, you're going to realize from what we're told in the Scripture that one, it's impossible, it's just absolutely impossible to know how many children Adam and Eve have had by this time. To say nothing of grandchildren and, and, and great-grandchildren and maybe great-great-grandchildren, who Who knows? But by the time we reach verse 17 of chapter 4, there obviously are enough people upon the earth for Cain to to fear from his life, to fear for his life, to fear that one of them will try to kill him, and also for him to find a wife. And who did he marry? Well, obviously, Cain married either his sister or a niece, which I know is disturbing to us, but there really isn't any other possibility. And at this particular point, is not yet forbidden. In the latter half of Genesis chapter 4, we're told about some of Cain's descendants. Just look there with your, just look at there very quickly. In verse 17, we're told of the birth of Enos, Cain's son, after whom Cain names the place in which he dwells. Verse 20, we're told about a a descendant of Cain named Jabel, who becomes a nomad and a cattle breeder and In verse 21, Jabel's brother Jubal proves musically talented. In verse 22, Jubal Jabel and Jubal, Jabal and Jubal. um, Who comes up with these names? Jabal and, it's worse than render, Jabal and Jubal's half-brother Tubal Cain. He makes, and there was, by the way, a baby born in the church at Grand Cayman while I was there, and the parents named the child Tubal Cain. Okay, because it was in the Bible. And they got to it early as they were reading the chapters. Okay. In verse 22, uh, Jabel and, and Jubal's half-brother Tubal Cain makes advances in metallurgy. And I want you to see all of that. There's, there's a principle here, and that principle is God's common grace. Because the line of Cain, as we're about to see... These are not godly men, but God's common grace is poured out upon them, and they are able to accomplish some good and important things which will prove of benefit to everyone, including those who are followers of Yahweh, those who are followers of God. So they they accomplish good things, but the things they accomplish are not done in gratitude to the Lord. They're not done for the purpose of glorifying Him. Instead, it becomes pretty obvious that Cain's descendants follow closely in Cain's footsteps. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4. Lamech is the seventh named descendant of Cain. 
verses 19 through 24, we learn that Lamech is a polygamist. We learn that he is a boastful, bloody tyrant. I mean, he boasts, you know, if God could protect Cain sevenfold, Lamech will protect his own seventy-sevenfold. I mean, Lamech is obviously a man in no need of God. At the end of Genesis 4, verse 25, Eve gives birth to another son. I don't think it's necessarily, we necessarily should think that this is her third son, but she does give birth to another son, a son who is given specifically for the purpose of taking Cain's place, and his name is Seth. And with Seth, in contrast to the line of Cain, with the descendants of Cain, we are shown the lives of some godly men and women. Seth's firstborn is Enos, and in sharp defiance, um, in, in, in sharp um, uh, contrast to, uh, to Cain's defiant uh, descendants, uh, we're told that the line of Seth begin to call upon the name of the Lord, and I've tried to think through that phrase and look at that phrase and I'm pretty well persuaded that when it says that people began to call upon the name of the Lord, that it's it's telling us that they now begin the practice of holding public and corporate services of worship. In Genesis chapter 5, we're reminded that Adam was created in God's image, but look at verse 3. Now we're told that Seth, who obviously was also created in God's image, even as all of us are created in God's image, and we know that from what the rest of Scripture teaches, but now we're told that Seth was also created in the image of his father, Adam. And that's who we are. Image bearers of God, and yet also image bearers of Adam. Seth inheriting from his father Adam, a fallen nature, even as we have inherited a fallen nature. But as you look through chapter 5, most of Seth's descendants appear to be godly men and women. Genesis 5, I just have to comment very briefly upon this. Uh, there There are mysteries in Scripture for me, as well as for you, things that just leave me staggering and going, wow! Um, and I realize that's not the most academic response in the world, but it's about the only thing I can do at times. Uh, in Genesis 5, we learn that people were living extraordinarily long lives. Um, and in this fifth chapter, the names of firstborn sons are given, along with the fact that uh, uh, to these families were born many other sons and daughters. Many other sons and daughters. I mean, clearly they were Presbyterians. And now, note, we're told repeatedly, um, um, we're told repeatedly um, that even though these people of the line of Seth, even though these are godly men and women, we're told repeatedly something I think that is intended to remind us that they were still part of a fallen race. Because in chapter 5, repeatedly, this formula is always used. You're told the story of a particular descendant, and at the end of each story you're told, and he died. 
and he died. I mean, it almost becomes a hammer, and he died. Everyone except one. The seven, look at verse 21, chapter 5. The seventh named descendant of Seth is Enoch. And we're told in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch walked with God and was taken into the Lord's presence. And I take that to mean taken into the Lord's presence without experiencing death. Now, I've told you how important numerology is to the Hebrew uh, much more than it is to us. And you just need to take note of the fact that in chapter 4, the seventh named descendant of Cain was Lamech, who was a polygamist and a boastful avenger. The seventh named descendant of Seth is this godly man, Enoch. Just this, bam! You see the contrast? Now, we're moving rapidly here, but I have to. Or I may not finish this before I die, so we just, we just need to keep on moving here. The tenth named descendant of Seth will be Noah. Look at chapter 5, verse 29. Uh, 29. Chapter 5 and verse 29. And notice that at the birth of Noah, Noah's father Lamech, now here we go. This is not the Lamech of Cain's line. This is the Lamech of Seth's line. Do they have the same name? How many people here are named John? Put your hand up. How many people here are named John? Put your hands up. How many people here are named John? See, there's a few of us. How many people here are named David? They put your hands up. Okay, how many people here are named... What's a good one? Huh? Re, how many people here are named Render? Okay, so... Okay, no, so... So, Lamech is a common name. This, this Lamech, the father of Noah, not the Lamech of Cain's line, but notice that Noah's father Lamech, chapter 5, verse 29, this is what he muses, this is what he says, this is what he prays, if you will, at the birth of Noah. He says in verse 29, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Is that not a little stunning? Is that not a little stunning? And relief will be desperately needed. As Genesis 6 begins, things grow horribly worse. Look at Genesis 6, the beginning of the sixth chapter of Genesis, where we're told that the sons of God marry the daughters of men, which I believe and understand that to be telling us that the line of Seth, referred to here as the sons of God, and the line of Cain, who are the daughters of men, they begin to intermarry. And the consequence, as it is almost always the consequence, how many times do we see a believer marry an unbeliever because the believer thinks, if we just get married, I'm going to lift her up, I'm going to lift him up. And it almost always works the other way. Almost always works the other way, which of course is why the Scripture instructs us 
that we are not to be unequally yoked together. And here, the intermarriage of these two lines begins to take place, and as a consequence, this is what we read in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil. And then I read verses 6 and 7, and I'm really just, I'm just staggered. Look at verses 6 and 7. And the Lord was sorry. Now I'm going to talk about that at length next Lord's Day morning. Because that's a staggering statement. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. And, look at the next, next statement. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Lord is sorry. The Lord is grieved. The Lord is sorry. Let me just say this and I'll expand upon this next week. The Lord is not the Lord is not emotionless. Now what we have here now just stay with me a second. What we have here is called I'm not showing off, this is the term and you need to know this term. What we have here is called anthropomorphic language. What does that mean? That means language that describes God from a human perspective. Anthropomorphic. Men, the shape of men, the form of men, the way men think, the way men react, the way men feel. But this is what I want you to understand. Scripture makes it very clear to us that God is not without emotion. Sometimes I think we know, we, I don't know what it is we, we think, but I, uh, I sometimes think we, we, we picture God standing in heaven going, mm. you know, God is emotion. Isaiah will talk about the Holy Spirit being grieved. Do you remember that in Mark chapter 3, we're told that not only, Jesus, not only was Jesus grieved, He was angry. Grieved and angry. There is godly sorrow. There is godly grief. There is godly anger. What makes it godly? Because it's always perfectly just and right. It is the just and right response to whatever individual, to whatever circumstance the Lord may be dealing. And that's the difference between God and us. Sometimes we know what it is to be genuinely sorrowful. I mean, we, you know, went up to Bo Ferguson's uh, viewing last Monday um, up in Gallatin, and that was a sorrowful occasion. That was a time to weep with those who weep. 
That was a godly sorrow. This is not what should be. We should not have to experience the loss of such a young man. Christine should not have to lose a husband after just two or three years of marriage. It shouldn't work that way. But we live in a fallen world. And that's the consequences. And it makes us grieve. And sometimes that grief is genuine. And it's good. And we know what it is. The Scripture clearly indicates there's such a thing as righteous indignation. Now, I think few of us know little about righteous indignation, but there is such a thing as righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is when you're really angry over the consequences of sin as it impacts perhaps your own life or as it impacts the lives of others. But the truth of the matter is, most of us feel sorry for ourselves. And most of us simply get angry at others because we don't like what they say or we don't like what they do or what they've done or said causes us inconvenience and just makes our life difficult and it's all very egotistical. God's anger is always just. It's always right. God's grief, God's sorrow is always the exactly right response to a given situation. And that's what's going on here. I'm sorry to take so long, but I gotta put this together. That, that, that's, that's what, that's what's going on here. Do you understand that? But listen, here's where we go. Look at chapter six. Look at verse eight. After all these horrible things that we've just been told. Look at verse eight of Genesis six. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why did God favor Noah? Why did God choose to love Noah? And because of his love and favor for Noah, that love and favor would impact all of Noah's family. Why did God do that? Why does God love you? Why has God favored you? He loves you because He loves you because for His own glory He has chosen to love you. He has chosen to favor you. That's why it's called grace. It is the unmerited favor of God. We come to the end of the Lord's Supper and we sing Amazing Grace. When we do that, do your eyes ever well up with tears? The only way we understand the unmerited favor of God, the only way we understand and be awed and be staggered by the idea of God's grace is that we understand that those people with whom God is angry those people about whom God is sorrowful, you and me, except for His grace. Except for His grace. Except for His grace. And we have a lot of trouble with that. Especially we Americans. We have a lot of trouble embracing what the Scripture says about who we are. What our standing is before God. Our standing before God without His grace 
is the standing before God of the people about whom he has spoken here in Genesis chapter 6. But God, but God, but God is gracious to us. Merciful, loving. And just as he will save Noah and his family, so he has saved us by the sending of the Son to suffer the penalty for our sins, to rise triumphant from the dead, to ascend back to the Father's right hand where He now reigns and from which He will come again. But here, this is the bottom line this morning. Listen to me. Listen to me. These people here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, Can you imagine how miserable and unhappy their lives must have been? Can you imagine the bickering? Can you imagine the gossip? Can you imagine the dissension? Can you imagine the hatred? Can you imagine the disrespect? I mean, can you imagine the violence? I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. And then God comes to us and He mercifully says to us in Psalm 34, He says, listen, my people, listen to me. Listen to me. You want to be able to live a life you love? You want to experience good days? And keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And because, like Noah, God has favored you, favored many of you, poured out His saving love upon many of you. You can do that. Why don't you do that? Because you're a son of Adam, you're a daughter of Eve, and you struggle with those things. But I would challenge you, I challenge you to to put Psalm 34 verses 11 through 13 on your refrigerator and sort of read that every day. Because I'm going to tell you what, the promise of God's Word is, it changes everything. It changes everything. Not saved by doing those things. But if you are God's child, you can do those things. And the doing of those things is part of the deliverance from that curse with which we are so startlingly confronted in the sixth chapter of Genesis. I'm way over time. Sorry, let me pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness, for Your mercy, and for the patience of these dear people. Now, Lord, teach us these truths. Lord, show us who we are. Show us Your grace. Show us who by Your grace we can be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.